0: Opening Arguments is brought to you by Progressive Insurance.
2: I'll have you know, the contents of that dumpster are private. You stick your nose in, you'll be violating attorney dumpster confidentiality. I
3: just wanted to say hello.
2: Oh. Hello.
0: (laughs) All right, we're done. You think the language in the Second Amendment is clear
2: enough? You know, about the right to bear arms? Of course it's clear. Every American has the right to hang a pair of bear arms on their wall. How could that possibly be misconstrued? All right, fantastic then. Wait, you know what? Before we send this to the printer, let's take that abortion thing out. Oh, come on. I move for a hearing on the matter. What? What? You want me to have a special motion on the admissibility of the word asshole? Well, let me have ass then. That's
1: close enough. What law school did you go to? I'll agree to it, Your Honor. You will? Why? I don't want any interlocutory appeals. What are you, a comedy team? Welcome to Opening Arguments the podcast that breaks down the law behind all the news stories you care about. This podcast is sponsored by the Law Offices P. Andrew Torres, LLC, for entertainment purposes, is not intended as legal advice, and does not form an attorney-client relationship. Don't take legal advice from a podcast. Hey guys, I'm Liz Dye, with me as Andrew
3: Torres, and this is Opening Arguments, Episode 755.
2: Hey Liz, how you doing?
3: I'm doing great. How are you?
2: I am great. I am excited to get back to a bunch of stories today. Although, I, I, you're going to wind me up a little bit here because...
3: I would never.
2: Yeah, this is... <laughs> we've been covering a bunch of the Alan Dershowitz sanctioned stories in connection with Arizona. And I've moved from finding it amusing to being really, really angry at what uh-huh. he's doing. So No,
3: I got that. Yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah we'll get there. But... First up is our favorite new chat GPT case, (laughs) Mata versus Avianca. And uh, okay, let's begin. Okay, two things on the notary statement we have heard from a (laughs) bunch of New York lawyers. This is delightful for Liz, but uh, less less so for me, but it's okay. Um, So in the interest of, Full disclosure: From what we have heard from New York practitioners, number one, apparently, it's more common in New York for lawyers to be notaries. And and again, I get that if you've got a solo shop, I I have seen that.
3: Yeah, I I my understanding is that lawyers don't have to pass a test; you just have to kind of you know say you want to be a notary, and then you can basically order your stamp. So I, I think it's not; I don't think it's particularly uncommon
2: there. Okay, um, but but I would point out Levitow, Levitow, and Oberman already had a paralegal with a notary stamp. Yeah. I think you're going to speak to that one. Okay. So I was wrong drawing an inference from that. And then also, apparently, New York notary stamps can leave the expiration date blank. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems absolutely bonkers to me. But you know, hey, that's why we have this segment. So I'll uh, I'll wear the L on that.
3: Yeah, but this is this is still a live issue, though, um, as Judge Kevin Castle noted, because every other document that was notarized in this case was notarized by the same Levitow, Levitow and Oberman paralegal. The only time Laduca, you know, the the lawyer who's one of the two lawyers who's in deep, deep shit, had a <laughs> the thirty five year associate, yeah, 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 um, the only time Laduca had a document notarized by Stephen Schwartz, that would be the other lawyer who's in deep, deep shit, um, was the <laughs> affidavit in which. Schwartz and Laduca, um, under his own name, perpetrated that fraud on the court with the mm-hmm. f- fake, eff- you know, with the fake. Cases And that affidavit is dated January 25th, not April 25th, as we discussed. So it's still a dummied up notarization. And that's still weird for all the reasons we've previously discussed. Um, yeah. And and not just just weird, but definitely on Judge Castell's mind. Um, we know that because in the days following our coverage, Schwartz and Leduca each hired counsel, as did their as did their firm, Levitel, Levitel & Oberman, um, and they requested an extension of time to file a response in a continuation of the hearing. Judge Castle gave them two extra business days to file their written answers. That gives them until the day you're likely listening to this show, Tuesday, June 6th. But Judge Castle said that under no circumstances would he be budging off the Thursday, June 8th show cause hearing mm-hmm. um, at which they need to explain what the hell happened here, and, and while I said that Judge Castel granted Laduca's motion for extension of time, that grant was a little testy. It was, it was perhaps more <laughs> of a warning than a grant.
2: Yes, um, it J- was.
3: Judge Castel said, "Mr. Laduca is differently situated from Mr. Schwartz and the firm." He has availed himself of a full and fair opportunity to respond to the court's OSC, that's order to show cause. Regarding non existent case law and three possible grounds for sanctions, he is not entitled to a do over. The only point of response to the supplemental show cause order of May 26th is whether he, that is, Leducca, in fact appeared before Mr. Schwartz, a notary public, on April 25th, 2023, and took an oath to tell the truth. That should be a simple and straightforward matter. But if he needs until june 6 2023 to respond on this point he may have the time (laughs) ouch so
2: what one one more bit of news on that same day friday june 2nd schwartz filed yet another letter this is like four uh you know okay the lawyers are billing hours that's fine uh this letter advises that although we expect that our june 6 2023 submissions will address the main factual issues in the show cause order in an abundance of caution, Mr. Schwartz, Mr. Loduca, and the firm intend to make the following individuals available to present testimony on the issues relevant and to answer any questions the court may have, that is, at oral argument on Thursday. And, and the three folks they will make available are Stephen A. Schwartz, Esquire, Peter Loduca, Esquire, and Thomas Corvino, Esquire, a new name, new player, has entered the chat.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I did go digging into that. I didn't find too much about Mr. Corvino. Although I would note with your joke about, you know, lawyers needing to bill hours. I don't think they're going to get paid on this case. I feel reasonably confident (laughs) that they're not going to get paid on this case. I feel reasonably confident that their E&O carrier is going to have a few words. But anyway, um, so anyway, Levito's website has been down. And that paralegal that we referred to who notarized all the other documents appears to have changed her LinkedIn. Um, uh, Yeah, well, uh, wouldn't you? Yes. Anyway, all I can find here is the New York bar records. And they say that Thomas Robert Corvino is an attorney in New York admitted in the Second Judicial Department in 1986, registered with the Office of the Court of Administration of New York Unified Court System. His employer is Levitt Al, and Oberman, PC. He graduated from St. John's University and his current status is delinquent. <laughs>
0: I've said it before and I'll say it again, democracy simply doesn't work.
3: Next up, we have an update on Thursdays, episode 752, when we told you about the CNN story involving Donald Trump blabbing to Mark Meadows' biographers about a classified military document. Yeah,
2: and last week when we covered it, the significance of the story related to Trump's potential defense to a charge under 18 U.S.C. section 793E, right, that's the Espionage Act. And that Defense, right, that Trump has been flogging since day one is that he can declassify documents with his mind. Not that the classification status matters for purposes of the Espionage Act, but whatever. So essentially, when the story first broke, the interview tended to show that Trump was well aware that he could not declassify documents with his mind because he said, Oh, I didn't declassify that document. I can't share it with you. So Important to show that Trump is lying, but, you know, since Trump is breathing, I I didn't think it was that significant a story.
3: Yeah. And as with everything with Trump, this story gets worse and worse, the more we learn. So the document in question was a classified Pentagon document that would, quote, refute the idea that chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff General Mark Milley had been trying to stop him from starting a war with Iran, which had been suggested by Susan Glasser in The New Yorker. According to Hugo Lowell of The Guardian, Trump had his assistant Margot Martin tape that interview since he doesn't trust the media to accurately report what he says. When special counsel Jack Smith subpoenaed her laptop, he found that recording in which Trump was, you know, telling the reporters that he regrets that the documents are still classified and he wished he'd declassified before he left the White House. And importantly, he implied that he still had that document in his possession, which would tend to show that he not only retained it, but he was aware that it didn't become magically declassified when he pocketed it or by some subsequent act of telepathic transubstantiation. (laughs) (laughs) So over the weekend, CNN reported that the document referred to on tape was not turned over to Jack Smith's investigation. And since prosecutors subpoenaed any and all documents and materials related to Mark Milley, that would be Trump's chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and Iran – including maps or invasion plans, that's that's not great news for Trump. And apparently Smith's prosecutors spelled out very slowly and carefully to Trump's lawyers that they were asking for this document and others like it. So perhaps it was kept in that room that Evan Corcoran said in his notes that he was waved off from searching for classified documents. And in, in response to that DOJ subpoena that was reportedly in the notes handed over to the grand jury after U.S. District Judge Beryl Howell overrode Trump's claim of attorney client privilege under the crime fraud exception.
2: Yeah. There is no doubt to me that, you know, if this document exists, Jack Smith's office has copies of it from any number of other sources. So now, instead of the Iran document just, you know, refuting a dumb defense that Trump intended to offer, it seems as though it it could be affirmative evidence of the mens rea requirement, right? That Trump willfully retained documents related to the national defense and that he did it, you know, knowing they were still classified
3: yeah and and I just want to jump in here i'm going to, I want to play you guys a little tape because um we've talked about how trump's lawyers are kind of losing their shit as they realize that an an indictment in the documents case is probably heading down the pike in fact Trump was screaming about it on truth social. I'm going to spare you guys that one but I'm going to play you a little <laughs> clip of Timothy Parlatori because he's got some interesting interpretations of the statute
1: you know there are a lot of additional um you know, problems or um, Procedures that you have to go through with that type of a case, mm-hmm. and especially when it's, you know, politically sensitive. And and I know not a lot of people are going to agree with this, um, you know,
2: parallel. But to me, even if he did a lot of the things that they're saying that
1: he did, prosecuting him, there are the same reasons why you wouldn't want to prosecute him as to why back in 2016 I was of the opinion that Hillary Clinton Clinton shouldn't be prosecuted, because there are all of these other problems. You know, you have to you, classification is not binding on the jury. Yeah. You have to
2: actually take these documents, yeah. show them to the jury and then prove to them that it constitutes national defense information. In doing so, you're, you're putting classified things. That's exactly. it. I, I,
3: So I I don't know if you guys caught that at the end where he said classification is not binding on the jury and you know Chuck Todd's just going like oh yeah exactly you have to actually (laughs) take those documents show them to a jury and prove to them that it constitutes national defense information first of all Tim Parlatori doesn't know what what Donald Trump's going to be charged with and no classification the classification status of a document is not a question for the jury it either is classified or it is not Tim Tim Parlatori is. Good luck. I mean, he's the remember, he's the lawyer that just noped <laughs> out because he said he couldn't work with Boris Epstein, and it was all Boris Epstein's fault that everything was going sideways. So good luck with that, buddy.
2: Yeah. I mean, I couldn't work with Boris Epstein either. <laughs> so, you know, fair
3: enough. Okay. Girl, same. Keep trying.
2: Silence, or you'll be held in contempt of this court. I have nothing but contempt for this court.
3: Okay. And in our final quick update, Andrew, the stories we cover are intersecting. Specifically, (laughs) there was an article in Business Insider suggesting that Guo Wangui, a.k.a. Miles Kwok, may have been the one who posted bail for everybody's favorite astronaut congressman. Jewish, <laughs> Holocaust rabbi, rabbi, right? I don't know what else he is, he got like 15 Race jobs. car
2: driver, yeah. volleyball
3: player, volleyball player at Baruch College. Um, anyway, he, I George forgot Santos. About that one. <laughs> no, he really did say he was like, I and do. he got a knee injury. It was so crazy. Anyway, he, um, somebody, three somebodies posted George Santos's half a million dollar bond a couple of weeks ago. And there's this, been this dispute as to who did it. And now, Business Insider suggests that perhaps it was Miles Kwok, Steve Bannon's sugar daddy.
2: and. H-Coin to the moon
3: author. <laughs> Maybe we can play that as our outro today. Oh, I love it so much. <laughs> okay. So here's the backstory. On May 10th, 2023, Representative Santos was arraigned before magistrate judge Anne Shields, and the conditions of his release were set. Those conditions included a $500,000 unsecured bond, which was to be co-signed by three unidentified sureties other than Santos himself. Those are basically guarantors yep. that he's going to you know, show back up. Those names have not yet been made public. Various members of the media have intervened in the case and moved to unseal the names of the guarantors so we can see if Kwok is indeed one of them. That's really two legal issues. One, is the public entitled to know who Santos's backers are? And two, if it is, in fact, Steve Bannon's sugar daddy, Miles Kwok, a.k.a. Guo Wangui, who bailed out Santos, what's the significance? So let's take those in order. So first...
2: Under the Second Circuit precedent, right, which is binding, the court balances the individual's right to privacy with the public's right to know, right? That's very traditional. It's a three-part test. One, the degree to which the subject matter is traditionally considered private rather than public. Two... The nature and degree of the injury and three, the reliability of the information in the record. And again, the law here seems pretty solid on all three of those factors. Uh, just for example, the, the court recently unsealed the names of the sureties in the Sam Bankman Freed. That's the mm-hmm. FTX indictment. So, yeah, like this is this is the yeah. kind of thing under those factors that we tend to want to know.
3: So. Fine. Either Santos or the government, or both of them, could oppose that motion. Santos clearly is going to oppose it, but his response isn't due until Monday, June 5th, which is after this recording. The government has already weighed in, however, and it, it doesn't give a shit, basically, uh, which seems like it's not, not a great sign for Santos. The government said the defendant moved to redact the names of the sureties on the bond. The government took no position on that request, which the court granted. The sureties were not identified on the publicly available order setting conditions of release and appearance bond. The instant motions filed by various news outlets seek to unseal the sureties' names. The government continues to take no position on the public disclosure of the sureties' names and thus takes no Position as to the pending motions, yeah, and
2: and look, th- this isn't just to you know satisfy our curiosity, make for great OA content. No, I'm,
3: well, I'm not mad about it though.
2: <laughs> well, you get girl, same, right? But but this has real implications for Santos in, in two ways, right? So first, that bail decision is not final. There is nothing that prevents the court from rejecting those sureties once it learns more about them, from amending the conditions of his release, from revoking bail entirely. Right. And I'm not suggesting that that's going to happen, but it could. Right. And second, and I think this is also significant. Remember that the court approval of bail sureties has to do with the connection between those guarantors and the defendant. Right. So let's make that explicit. Right. To be an effective surety, the individuals must have a sufficient relationship to Representative Santos to to deter him from, you know, not just fleeing the jurisdiction. Right. Otherwise, he could peace out and not care that the guarantors are going to default.
3: So if it is Quack and look it's not going to be Quack himself it's going to be you know one of his minions he's got a lot of people who work for him but if it is somebody related to Quack we will see an argument in open court about whether these minions or Quack himself has a sufficiently close relationship with George Santos to to function as a real guarantor and that would be fascinating can't wait for that one And
2: just to give a hint about this we do not know Quack's relationship to Santos, but we know that Santos sure seems to like Quoc an awful lot. Here's some audio that Santos recorded in his car. I apologize. It's a step down from the usual audio quality you've come to expect here at OA, but uh, I, I think you'll want to hear this one.
0: Miles Guo is a political prisoner of the CCP inside of the United States. Let that sink in. Free
2: Miles Guo. And we'll be back after this brief ad break.
0: Opening Arguments is brought to you by Progressive Insurance.
2: And we're back.
3: I
0: move for a bad court thingy. You mean a mistrial? Yeah. That's why you're the judge and I'm the law talking guy.
2: Okay, for our main story, buckle up, because we've covered this a bunch, but mainly we've been laughing at Alan Dershowitz's bad arguments, and I've changed my mind on that, right? I am now really, really angry. I mean, I'm still laughing, but... Here's what Dersh is doing. He is trading on his name to try and craft a special set of rules for old lawyer law professor sellouts (laughs) at Ivy League universities like Alan Dershowitz. Right. So Uh let's set the stage. Back in the summer of 2022, Republican big suck loser candidate for governor of Arizona, (laughs) Carrie Lake, knew she was probably going to lose unless she could suppress enough votes. So she filed a completely meritless lawsuit seeking, among other things. To prevent the use of voting machines in the 2022 election, and she actually offered in open court that the model was going to be the the model that the cyber ninjas used for like that partial recount that took them like nine months to count twelve votes. I mean, it's just crazy.
3: Right, right. I mean, it wasn't nine. You know, it wasn't it wasn't twelve votes. Okay, it was the entirety of Maricopa County, which is which is where they keep the people in yeah. Arizona. <laughs> but it did take them. Months and months and months and was a total sham. Yeah. So uh, that wasn't a great model, particularly considering Arizona law says that you have to report to the secretary of state within whatever it is, 30 days. Right. Anyway, but but your reference to, among other things that she alleged, just doing quite a lot of heavy lifting, <laughs> um, because Carrie Lake's lawyers set out in paragraph 143 uh, of their complaint all the things that they wanted, and it did not include a pony, but, you know, sure, why not? Yeah. They wanted they wanted that ballots are cast by voters filling out paper ballots by hand. The ballots are then placed in a sealed ballot box. Each ballot bears a discrete, unique identification number, which is made known by election officials only to the voter so that the voter can later verify whether his or her ballot was counted properly. All ballots will be printed on specialized paper to confirm their authenticity. Through a uniform chain of custody, ballot boxes are conveyed to a precinct-level counting location while still sealed. With party representatives, ballot boxes are unsealed one at a time, and ballots are removed and counted in batches of 100, then returned to the ballot box. When all ballots in a ballot box have been counted, the box is resealed with a copy of the batch tally sheets left inside the box and the batch tally sheets carried to the tally center with a uniform chain of custody. Ballots are counted one at a time by three independent counters to each produce a tally sheet that is compared to the other tally sheets at the completion of each batch. Like a side note, we're we're not talking about one race here. We're talking about each ballot's gonna have like fifteen different races on it and you know probably some bond issues or whatever else has got they've got going on there. Like this is impossible. Yeah. Anyway at the Tally Center, two independent tallyers add the cast from the batch <laughs> sheets, and their results are compared to ensure accuracy. Vote counting from paper ballots is conducted in full view of multiple recording streamed cameras that ensure, A, no ballot is ever touched or accessible to anyone off-camera or removed from view between acceptance of a cast ballot and completion of counting – B, all ballots while being counted are in full view of a camera and are readable on the video. And C, batch tally sheets and precinct tally sheets are in full view of a camera while being filled out and are readable on the video. Each ballot... (laughs) It's still going. Each cast ballot. No, no, I'm still going. <laughs> Stop. Each cast ballot from the time of receipt by a sworn official from a re- verified el- eligible elector remains on video through the completion of precinct counting and reporting. The video be live streamed for public access <laughs> and archived for use as an auditable record with public access to replay a copy of that auditable record. Anonymity will be maintained, however. Any elector will be able to identify their own ballot by the discrete serial ballot number known only to themselves and to see that their own ballot is actually accurately counted. This is crazy. Like, this is nuts. That's not going to work. It'll take until, you know, forever. It'll take until the earth falls into the sun. We will never know the outcome of any election, which is why we don't do it like this anymore. Yeah. And
2: four quick things in response to this, right? Number one, remember that This is all relief that Carrie Lake's lawyers want the court to craft out of nothing, right? Like, this is not proposed Mm -hmm. legislation, right? Like, what's the statutory ground for why the court could restrict ballots to being counted in batches of 100 and not batches of 200? You know, good for you, right? Like, go figure that one out. Number two, these allegations, and this is probably the most important point are based on patently false assertions of fact, right? Like the repeated claim that they just made up that Dominion voting machines do not leave a paper trail, which which they uh, do, right? Mm-hmm. The idea that you have to vote on paper and then have a special serial number that only you know that corresponds to your ballot as it's audited by Aiden, this is literally a QAnon, Alex Jones-level conspiracy theory that... Alan Dershowitz lent his name to.
3: Right. I mean, the the point of this is to say, if you don't have any of these impossible conditions or if you don't have all of these impossible conditions, then there must be fraud. Right. I mean, the danger of indulging like n- none of this sounds like a big deal. Like, why is this such a big deal if you would like have any one of these steps? But insisting that if you don't have all these crazy conditions precedent, then it's evidence, prima facie evidence that the, e- the election was stolen. That is their game. And that's why it's really dangerous to indulge in this stuff. And that's why Dershowitz really should be kind of shamed for participating in this
2: A- ab- absolutely and that that dovetails with my third point which is that Alan Dershowitz keeps lying he knows damn well that's what he lent his name to and he keeps right. lying about it in pleadings and in public in which he'll say things like right like his latest filing says this lawsuit isn't about 2020 election denialism which you know is the worst kind of technically correct, right? Like, he's not, yes, he is not retroactively seeking to install Trump as God-Emperor, like in, you know, Texas v. Pennsylvania or whatever. But it is the core claims from 2020 election denialism wrapped up in a prospective package to try and sabotage the 2022 elections, right? It's mm-hmm. the same damn thing, right? Right. And, and, and fourth, <laughs> and, and important as we move this story forward, after filing this nonsense complaint, right, seeking all of that, you know, pages and pages of, of highly specialized relief, Carrie Lake then moved for a preliminary injunction, which is the only way you would get that relief by, you know, preventing the state from using electronic voting machines to count ballots, right? But she didn't do it right away. She didn't do it contemporaneously with the filing of her complaint, Um That was filed in June. Lake and her lawyers waited seven weeks until the end of July to move for that preliminary injunction. Why did they wait the seven weeks? Well, I can tell you there isn't a good legal reason, but perhaps there was a strategic reason in dumping a preliminary injunction motion on the desk of a whole bunch of various election officials in blue counties on the literal eve of Arizona's
3: primary. And, you know, put a pin in that one. Yeah, the preliminary injunction motion also made some laughably false claims. Um, it said, the right to vote and know that one's vote is fairly and accurately counted is foundational to our democracy. Okay. With this case, <laughs> plaintiffs seek to eliminate the black box voting system that is developed in this country as it is used in this state. Arizona voters no longer know whether their vote has been accurately tabulated or manipulated, and there can be no spot check with reasonable levels of confidence. And I'm just going to break in here for a second. This case was the one that that... Mike Lindell, who funded this case, basically, had promised that he was going to sue, quote, all the machines. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't think he was managed to get service of process on all the machines. But this was the case that he that he said was going to eliminate electronic voting in this country. Yeah. Um, so they go on. For centuries, American voters recorded their votes by hand on paper ballots that were counted by human beings. In the last two decades, states, including Arizona, have adopted electronic computerized voting systems. Expert analyses, studies and investigations have determined that even the most sophisticated computers can be and have been hacked. It is now widely accepted that the equipment used is often assembled or made in countries like China that allow unauthorized access. Indeed, countries like Russia, China and Iran have thousands of highly trained individuals whose sole function is to penetrate commercial and government computers in the United States, including our election (laughs) systems. Okay, so you, you see what they're saying. They're saying if any condition, you know, if any of these crazy things that we don't ask for don't don't come our way, then the elections are stolen. Like to be clear. No, there are not thousands of Iranian hackers dialing into our voting machines like it's war games. These things are not connected to the Internet. Yeah. This is all bullshit.
2: Yeah. Nice pop culture reference there. I'm very proud of you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So that nonsense P.I. motion was signed by one Alan M. Dershowitz. He was signed to be admitted pro-hoc vice, and he was described as... Counsel for plaintiffs Carrie Lake and Mark Fincham. Now, that may surprise you since we've told you that Dersh has insisted, you know, 87 billion times that he's only ever described as of counsel. But yeah, we're going to use that signature line as the show graphic because it is just an out and out lie.
3: Boy, are you salty I today, am buddy? Old.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get the shaker ready.
3: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the court denied that motion for preliminary injunction because, yeah, no shit, and it bounced the entire lawsuit because it was it was based on this lie that there was no paper trail and there was a paper trail. So in August of 2022, the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors moved for sanctions against plaintiffs and their counsel, which is you know as well they should, right?
2: Yep, and. It's important to understand procedurally that the motion for sanctions had two components to it, right? There was a Rule 11 motion for the filing of the complaint itself, which contained all the lies about how there were no paper ballot trails, right? And then there was a 28 U.S.C. 1927 motion pursuant to the court's inherent powers to discipline attorneys for running up the other side's fees without good cause, right? That statute says any attorney or other person admitted to conduct cases in any court of the United States who so multiplies the proceedings in any case unreasonably and vexatiously may be required by the court to satisfy personally the excess costs, expenses, and attorney's fees reasonably incurred because of such conduct.
3: Right. And and just in case you didn't catch, like in plain <laughs> English, if you know that this case is dead in the water and you keep screwing around and wasting the court's time and running up the other side's fees, that's that's sanctionable. Yes. Right. That That's the basis for sanctions. So the lawyers for Carrie Lake filed an opposition to that motion for sanctions back in August of 2022. Keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. But you know who did not file a separate opposition? that would be your buddy, Alan (laughs) Dershowitz. Instead, he just kind of hung out and waited to see what happened. Um, But what happened was that the court did, in fact, issue both sets of sanctions. We broke that down for you in episode 658. First, the court found that Rule 11 sanctions were appropriate because there were so many lies in the briefs. The court said, Plaintiffs lacked an adequate factual or legal basis to support the wide ranging constitutional claims they raised or the extraordinary relief they requested. Plaintiffs filled the gaps between their factual assertions, claimed injuries, and requested relief with false, misleading, and speculative allegations. Plaintiffs presented mere conjectural claims of potential injuries. Rule 11 requires more. Here, Remember here. Rule, rule <laughs> 11 is when they you know, sanction your lawyers for filing such crap. Then, although the court declined to say that Lake and her lawyers were abusing the judicial system for political purposes, it thought that the question was a pretty close one. It said, it should be clear, however, that the court does not find that the plaintiffs have acted appropriately in this litigation. The court shares the concerns expressed by other federal courts about misuse of the judicial system to baselessly cast out on the electoral process in a manner that is conspicuously consistent with the plaintiffs political ends. I think that's fairly self-explanatory, but he's basically saying, quit using the court for your political bullshit. And finally, the court decided that Lake's lawyers did, in fact, unreasonably and vexatiously run up the state's legal bills by waiting seven weeks to file their motion for preliminary injunction. The court writes... Plaintiffs' counsel waited nearly seven weeks after filing this case to move for a preliminary injunction, despite alleging imminent and irreparable injury in their original complaint. By the time of the MPI hearing, that's the motion for preliminary injunction, on July 21, 2022, the midterm election was fewer than four months away. As noted, the relief plaintiffs requested was remarkable and perhaps unprecedented. And as the Maricopa County defendants note, the timing of plaintiffs' motion for preliminary injunction res- Resulted in, quote, wasting the time of election employees on the eve of the August 2022 primary election and ref- forcing the unnecessary expenditure of taxpayer resources. Further, plaintiff's counsel filed a motion for preliminary injunction soon after counsel for the Maricopa County defendants notified them as to the frivolousness of plaintiff's claims and the applicable bars to relief, including the Purcell Doctrine. That's a Supreme Court ruling that says you don't screw with elections on the eve of elections because it makes for chaos. Okay. Right. Right. Plaintiffs should have heeded the warning. In dismissing plaintiffs' claims, the court found that the relief plaintiffs sought would not just be challenging for Arizona's election officials to implement. It likely would be impossible under the extant time constraints.
2: Yeah, as as well it would be, right? Like you... Detailed all of this that would completely revamp and overhaul how votes are counted in Arizona. And to spring that on Maricopa County, you know, a week and a half before a primary and even four months before a general election. It's just, you know what you're doing. You're not you're not there's there's no way you could have put in these 800 independent monitors and the streaming services. And right. Right. uh, Nonsense. That also takes us back to one Alan M. Dershowitz, who 100 oh, percent <laughs> signed on to that motion for preliminary injunction as counsel, not of counsel, not I'm on these papers, but I totally don't believe anything these guys say. Right. Nothing like that. Right. Which should not be important for purposes of the story. Right. Because as we've read to you, both the law and Rule 11 are really clear. They apply to attorneys, right? Not to counsel, right? Like, anyway.
3: Even attorneys in their 80s, yeah. right? You don't get a senior citizen discount.
2: <laughs> that somehow, this has become the hill that Dersh has decided he is going to fight and die on. And, and this is really where my blood starts boiling.
0: Opening Arguments is brought to you by Progressive Insurance.
3: And we're back. A month after the court issued the sanctions order, Dershowitz moved for a show cause order for the court to explain why it sanctions order against Carrie Lake and her lawyers should apply to him simply because... He's one of her lawyers. No <laughs> fair. Um, we broke that down in episode 673. And and it was pretty funny because yeah. it seemed pretty clear that the court was going to reaffirm that and her lawyers meant, yes, you too, Alan. Um, <laughs> Dershama's argument in a nutshell was and is that he only appeared of counsel in this case and not counsel. So he's not really one of Carrie Lake's lawyers. He's just of counsel and also, P.S., he is old. Please don't sanction <laughs>
2: Right. To be clear, this argument is beyond frivolous. It is not tied to the words of either Rule 11 or Section 1927, which apply to lawyers. There are no magic words that let you as a lawyer get paid by a client to do frivolous and vexatious stuff, but somehow not be responsible for it. And even if there were, Durst didn't always use those magic words, which is, you know, why I had to stop to explain that whole signing the motion as counsel, not of counsel thing that, you know, kind of broke my brain a little bit. (laughs)
3: Yeah, I noticed. You'll be all right, buddy. (laughs) Um, Anyway, the court, which has not not only proceeded very cautiously on the whole sanctions issue, but shown exceedingly strong deference to Alan Dershowitz because he's Alan Dershowitz, instead allowed the parties to fully brief Dershowitz's motion and scheduled a hearing on May 24 that gave Dershowitz the very most he could have possibly hoped for. Right. The court took the motion under advisement rather than saying, come on come on, Alan, you know, get out of here. Uh, And that brings us to today. Because if you're asking yourself, having already gotten improper second bite at the apple to relitigate sanctions issued half a year ago, did Alan take the win and wait to see what would happen like the rest of us? But the answer is no. Yeah. (laughs) Instead, a week later, Dershowitz filed a supplement to record. Andrew, what the hell is this? Uh,
2: Well, Okay, I can tell you either what it should be, or I can tell you what it really
3: is. I think you should tell us both. Okay,
2: fair, fair. So what it should be is a notice of supplemental authority that alerts the court to pertinent and significant authority case law that that, that arises after, you know, in this case, for example, a, an oral argument has occurred, right? So... In a hypothetical, if the hearing was on May 24th and the Supreme Court issued a relevant ruling on May 30th while that motion was still pending, it is perfectly reasonable to alert that court to a new development, right? To say, hey, didn't know about this case because I can't travel through time. Here you go, right? Mm -hmm. But what's not reasonable to do is to come back. And say, hey, you know, I know we had five months of briefing and an entire day-long oral argument on my motion, but I still have more stuff I want to say to you that I didn't <laughs> get to say during oral <laughs> argument. And and that's what this really is. So it is, as as you foreshadowed. Alan Dershowitz's third bite at this of counsel apple. And I guess he's just decided to save the dumbest and most abusive of the arguments for last.
3: Wow. Harsh.
2: <laughs> yeah. No, it's it, yeah. Uh, he begins by doing something that is truly ugly, right? Which is essentially to blame the clerk's office for the fact that he signed off on this conspiracy theory level bullshit. Right. I, oh, I wish man. I was making this up, but, but here's what he actually said. Because the clerk's office specifically accepted the of counsel designation and demanded the pro hoc vice admission, (laughs) Dershowitz reasonably believed his usual use of the term to convey his limited role was at least consistent with the clerk's acceptance of that specific designation as distinct from requiring his appearance as counsel, uh, which term connoted to him, meaning Dershowitz, a full responsibility for the pleadings as a whole under rule 11. And again, sidebar, when you represent a client, you are fully responsible for the pleadings as all. Anyway, Dersh's lawyers continue. We contend the of counsel designation, so accepted, clearly imported to Dershowitz a much narrower scope of involvement being conveyed to the court and not a full endorsement of all points and positions beyond his limited contribution as a constitutional scholar. If uh-huh. the clerk's office believed there was no difference between the of counsel and counsel designation, it appears to us they should have not accepted the of counsel designation at all or advised Dershowitz directly that he was held nonetheless to the standard of rule 11 as to all pleadings and positions despite this designation. And then they say, oh, my God. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that, that this is their words. In fairness, his of counsel filing should have been rejected outright, right? That is, it was so unfair to Alan Dershowitz to, to let him sign on with, you know, whatever words uh-huh. he wanted to use there, if there is no such designation that is acceptable. But by not doing so, it is fair to at least accept that Mr. Dershowitz honestly believed there was a distinction drawn or that he would simply be required to sign on as counsel, period, Had this been clear to him, he would obviously have refused to sign on at all. Okay.
3: (laughs) I I, got to jump in here. Like, you already were getting an extra extra bites at the apple. But judges are pretty protective of their staff and saying, I'd like to blame your courthouse employees is a bad, bad move. Yeah.
2: And and uh, I think we're going to get to how Maricopa County decided to respond in a, in a second. But look, I also need to take issue. Right. It, it is far from obvious that Dershowitz, had he been required to sign on as counsel, would have, uh, you know, not done so. Like, he's running around defending Mike Lindell in multiple lawsuits, Carrie Lake in multiple lawsuits. Like, he knows who he's in bed with.
3: Okay. Um, right. And when they said you have to, th- they told him you have to enter an appearance pro hoc vice, and he said, okay. Exactly
2: right. right. Yeah. Um, and, and And look. Alan Dershowitz has been practicing law since the late Cretaceous, right? He knows damn well that the clerk's office is staffed by non-lawyer professionals. They do not give advice to lawyers who file in front of them. They just do their damn jobs. You can call yourself Alan Dershowitz Esquire. You can call yourself Alan Dershowitz of counsel. You can call yourself Alan Dershowitz, you know, Emperor Norton II of San Francisco, right? Like, it. they, they, they do not, they just accept your papers and even if the clerk's office were staffed by lawyers, they would not have had the lifetimes of experience that Alan Dershowitz has right. in knowing whether the ethics rules apply to him or not. Oh, I'm, I'm,
3: I'm still worked up. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. You take a breath a second. Okay, I, I, I'll take over. Thank you. So here's how the Maricopa County defendants put it in their opposition. They wrote. Remarkably, Dershowitz seeks to shift responsibility for his failings to this court's clerk's office. He claims that the clerk's office, quote, demanded that he seek pro vice admission as if someone from the clerk's office forced him to participate in this (laughs) litigation. And Dershowitz then appears to blame the clerk's office for not advising him of his ethical responsibilities under Rule 11 and appears to claim some type of detrimental reliance because the clerk's office allowed him to use the designation of counsel on some of his filings. Note that it was not all of his filings. Right. <laughs> um, but the clerk's office is not Dershowitz's attorney and had no obligation to advise him of the legal ramifications of signing filings made to the court or of what designations to use or not to use. Um, that's supported by a citation to footnote two, which in turn quotes the court's website, which lists the assistance that the clerk's office can and cannot provide to litigants and counsel, including, quote, We cannot tell you what words to use in your court papers, which would seem to be fairly dispositive. There's also this. And to be clear, Dershowitz chose to participate in the litigation and signed the complaint and motion for preliminary injunction, not any of the dedicated public servants in the clerk's office. His blaming of the clerk's office is bizarre. As an attorney, Dershowitz is an officer of the court, and such officers do not blame clerks for the decisions that they, the attorneys, make. Officers of the court take responsibility for their actions, or at least they should. This argument is absurd. (laughs) Ouch! So look, but not wrong. Yeah, no, this opposition hits Dirch
2: hard, but you know, not as hard as he deserves, right?
3: And it is absurd. It's an absurd argument, and yeah.
2: it's really shameful. Yeah, and and if you like that, you will love the relief. That Alan Dershowitz, I am not making this up now. Once from the court, um, and and I apologize. It's going to be a lengthy quote from his supplement, but I, I think we have to give the full context, or else Dershowitz will sue us for defamation. You know, like <laughs> well, you did that case CNN. Got yeah, right. So yeah, bring it on. All right, Dershowitz's lawyers, right? The supplement we seek to file. "...would concern a response by various experts on the ramifications, effects, and distinction placed on the of-counsel designation used by Dershowitz, intending to convey his limited function and engagement with the plaintiff's law firm to consult and argue certain constitutional issues as to the transparency required of private companies acting in a governmental function." The supplement would thus focus on exactly how such a limited expert consultant should properly participate in a litigation matter to avoid general sanctions for conduct on which he was not engaged, and whether such limited participation is appropriately conveyed by the designation of counsel so as to avoid sanctions being assessed against such counsel participating in a limited role. Uh-huh. Therefore, he <laughs> respectfully requests that the court allow sufficient time for him to gather that information through the use of the letter attached as an exhibit A that he is sending to such notable experts <laughs> in the field, right? Meaning his buddies, you know, law professors, right?
3: Oh my God, get a grip!
2: A- and then Dur says a reasonable time frame to gather that information of thirty to sixty days and provide it to the court and supplement the record thereby is hereby requested issues posed by the choices available to Dershowitz in such a circumstance appear to be a proper subject for a law review or a formal ethical opinion by the bar to lend guidance on a subject not at all presently clear. Indeed, Uh Professor Dershowitz intends to do just that. Write a law review article on the complexities of the decision that must be made by an increasing number of retired professors, judges, and lawyers who have consulting practices. Yeah. Won't somebody think of the poor multi-millionaire, <laughs> uh, you know, famous Ivy League law professors who were uh, – anyway, I, 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 I'll get back. So to get back to the lawyer's actual words, they say Durs is going to write a law review article uh, for these poor consulting retired professors, judges, and lawyers who have consulting practices limited to providing legal advice without wishing to undertake the core responsibilities of lead counsel, counsel of record, or full counsel, and who wish not to be subjected to the full responsibility of potential sanctions on other issues they are not involved with or familiar with or have any expertise on. So yes.
3: Or are too lazy to verify.
2: Right. Alan Dershowitz would like to take another two months after this issue has been briefed Litigated, gone to oral argument so that he can send a survey to his law professor buddies to issue self-serving opinions that, yes, old white law professors at elite law schools can too cash paychecks without having to vet their clients or co-counsel and then write a law review article about (laughs) it. I there are not words.
3: Yeah, no, I, 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 cannot imagine the Maricopa County lawyers having to looking at that. Um, anyway, they, they, after they pulled themselves together and stopped <laughs> laughing, they explained exi- that they they, they, they wrote this letter to the court. Here, Dershowitz has found no new authority. Rather, he improperly uses his supplement to announce that, in fact, there is no new authority to be found, but he wants the court to give him time to create some. Specifically, (laughs) Dershowitz wants to write a law review article, which presumably will support Dershowitz's position that he is somehow exempt from the ethical rules that apply to all attorneys who sign filings made to a court. Dershowitz will then presumably cite his law review article to this court to argue that he should not be sanctioned for signing on to a complaint and motion for preliminary injunction that this court found made false, misleading and unsupported factual assertions with claims for relief, which did not have an adequate factual or legal basis grounded in reasonable pre-filing inquiry in violation of Rule 11 and 28 U.S.C. Section 1927. Which, you know, clearly that's what he wants. Um, As for the idea that there needs to be clarity as to whether Rule 11 should or shouldn't apply to a lawyer who opines on stuff, Maricopa County points out that this is really an end run around lawyers who are getting paid to opine on stuff by disreputable plaintiffs. Mm -hmm. They write, Dershowitz now claims he only wanted to provide the court with the benefit of his, quote, limited expertise concerning whether the Constitution requires companies manufacturing voting systems to be fully transparent. And he claims that his only option to accomplish this objective was to list himself on various filings as of counsel. But Dershowitz is incorrect. If he really only wanted to opine on a narrow topic within this litigation, Dershowitz should have sought leave to file an amicus curiae brief as an independent party to address that topic. Or alternatively, he could have consulted by providing his expertise to plaintiff's counsel of record without listing himself as one of plaintiff's attorneys right. and signing the filings made to the court. Right? He could have been an expert witness. He could have been a bunch of things. He didn't have to be Carrie Lake's lawyer. But Dershowitz took neither of these approaches. Rather, he appeared on the complaint as an attorney of record, signing the complaint as of counsel for plaintiffs Carrie Lake and Mark Fincham. And he appeared on the the motion for preliminary injunction as an attorney of record, this time signing it not as of counsel, but rather as counsel for plaintiffs Carrie Lake and Mark, Mark Fincham. Remember, Mark Fincham was the secretary of state candidate. Dershowitz sold his name and reputation to a lawsuit filled with false and misleading allegations about elections and electoral processes, um, yeah. which is harsh and true.
2: Yes. And Dersh filed a reply primarily to address this point, uh, which he does so uh, by lying, right? So first, as you point out, he just elides the fact that he didn't have to sign any of the pleadings, right? He could have just been a consulting attorney. That would protect him and all his law professor buddies in perpetuity throughout the universe from any (laughs) Rule 11 sanctions, right? Yeah. as for the filing an amicus brief, Dersh makes this argument where he says, no, 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 if I had done that, that would have been the real breach of ethics. So here's what he what? says in reply. He says, by hiding his actual role from the court and or misrepresenting his role, right? Dershowitz was not an independent party. He was retained by the plaintiff's lawyer as a limited consultant. He maintains that under the circumstances, the only proper and ethical way of representing his involvement in the matter was to be on the pleadings as of counsel, and that is Bullshit. When you file an amicus brief, as I have done, you list your interest in the litigation on page one. If anybody has paid you to write the brief, you list that on page one. If you've been hired by Kerry Lake, you disclose that you've been hired by Kerry Lake, right? And and not addressing the consulting role is really telling because uh-huh. it, it shows that the, the part that you read is really hit home, right? Because let, let, let's let's unpack this a little bit. The only reason for Dersh to sign the pleadings is to lend his name and prestige to this bullshit Mm -hmm. lawsuit. Right. And it works. Right. Like, it's why we followed it in way more depth than similar crazy pants cases. Right. And and the important thing is Dersh knows this and Dersh knows that his checks are significantly larger if the case can say uh, counsel or of counsel Alan Dershowitz, as opposed to just helping out behind the scenes. And at the end of the day, that's what Alan Dershowitz wants. He wants a special rule that allows Alan Dershowitz and those similarly situated to Alan Dershowitz to get paid 100 cents top dollar, right, to lend their names and reputations in public to insane plaintiffs bringing frivolous lawsuits and then be able to nope out
3: without having to suffer the consequences. That's gross. Yeah. No, it is gross. I I mean... We've hammered this point home. We should, you know, we can close out this episode in a minute, but it wouldn't be a Dershowitz episode or show, as <laughs> he likes to say, um, without him piously complaining that, despite the fact that he represents the very worst election deniers in the country, people like Mike Lindell and Carrie Lake, Dershowitz personally hopes that they all lose and hang their heads in shame because. Dersh is absolutely, positively a liberal Democrat and not someone who sold out to the MAGA gravy train back in 2017. Oh, yeah. (laughs) He says, finally, from a reading of the sanctions order, the court indirectly may have concluded that Dershowitz essentially was trying to help Carrie Lake get elected by the use of false pretenses, including false statements to the court about the balloting process and thereby helping to create unfair distrust in the electoral process. Uh, Really? As to Professor Dershowitz, in particular, given his history, if that is the case, we wish to make clear that nothing would be further from the truth. It would indeed be nothing less than fundamentally unfair and unjust to apply or even infer these kinds of actions or motives to him, since the record is undisputed that, as a liberal Democrat for his entire life, he strongly favored Lake's opponent. Uh, Yeah, strongly favored Lake's opponent, but, you know, if this suit had
2: had merit would have been instrumental in putting rules into place that would have depressed voter turnout for a Lake's opponent. So, I, you know, spare me the crocodile tears,
3: Alan. Yeah. I, I mean, let's be clear here. What, what he's the argument that he's making is that he's making the same argument that the ACLU makes when it says, no, we have to kind of represent the most reprehensible people because the principle of free speech is that important, right? We're free speech absolutists. And you can agree or disagree disagree with that one. But but you can understand that it is a principled argument, right? But he is making that argument in a totally disingenuous way. He's saying, well, I, I just had to weigh in on these constitutional issues. And that's why I threw my lot in with these people who are attempting to make the public distrust our electoral system. That's bullshit, right? That, that's a bullshit cover for having sold his name to very, very bad people and now, you know, wanting to get out of having to pay the piper for it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And that will do it for episode 755. Thanks for being here, Liz. Love doing the show with you. Thank you. It was great. <laughs> and thanks to all of you for listening and especially to those of you who support us over on Patreon at patreon.com slash law. We will see you in a couple of days.
3: Bye, guys. You got into Harvard Law?
1: What? Like it's hard? This has been Opening Arguments with Andrew and Liz. If you love the show and want to support future episodes, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash law. If you can't support us financially, it would be a big help if you leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever podcast delivery vehicle you use. And be sure to tell all your friends about us. For questions, suggestions, and complaints, email us at openarguments at gmail.com. The show notes and links are on our website at www.openargs.com. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at OpenArgs. This podcast is a production of Opening Arguments Media, LLC, with assistance from Teresa Gomez and Deborah Smith.
2: Opening Arguments is a production of Opening Arguments Media, LLC, copyright 2023, all rights reserved.
0: Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help.